entrepreneurs and venture capitalists welcome back to the long game podcast in this episode titled treading the geopolitical tightrope we have the privilege of hosting a distinguished guest dr abdul razak baginder who was a former political analyst from malaysia with a wealth of experience in teaching and research dr abdul razak has made significant contributions to the field we will explore how companies and investors can successfully navigate the ever-evolving and challenging geopolitical landscape. From military conflicts to trade disputes and technological rivalries, the world's geopolitical environment has become increasingly complex, presenting both substantial risks and boundless opportunities for businesses worldwide. But before we dive into our discussion with Dr. Abdul Raza, Let's take a look at some of the highlights from quarter 2 2023 with our colleague Iman. So sit back, relax and let's get started. Hi, I'm Iman. I'm an analyst of Punjana Capital. Today, we will be looking back on what has happened in the second quarter around the globe and in Malaysia. As of quarter 2, 2023, we have seen the global equity markets have so far sustained a recovery year to date. In April, the S&P 500 rose 1.6%, the Nasdaq composite was up 0.1% and Morningstar Global XUS Index climbed 1.8%. That is despite further central bank rate hikes and bank turmoil rattling sentiment. The beaten down technology sector has been the winner thus far in 2023, while the financial sector has unsurprisingly suffered throughout the US regional bank crisis. Despite signs of an equity market recovery, the IPO market remains stagnant, especially for the US and Europe. A reduction in capital availability along with falling valuations of high-growth stocks has led to a significant decline in IPO activity since the start of 2022. At the same time, China's IPO market has remained relatively open, bouncing back the last two months in terms of IPO proceeds to $5.5 billion. VC investors across jurisdictions continue to show caution given the significant degree of uncertainty in the market. We have seen greater interest in generative AI given the strong spotlight shone on the space in quarter 1 2023 with approximately $1.7 billion in investments across 46 deals in the period according to PitchBook. There is also interest in alternative energy, green tech, defense, cybersecurity, B2B services, drone technologies, and agri-tech. In Malaysia, Bank Negara Malaysia BNM, has resumed monetary tightening after raising the overnight policy rate OPR by 25 basis points to 3% following its Monetary Policy Committee meeting in early May, citing a need to normalize monetary accommodation as the economy was resilient and it needed to manage persistent inflation. BNM said in a statement that the latest developments point towards further expansion in economic activity, 
in the first quarter of 2023, driven by strong domestic demand, household spending, and better labor market conditions. BNM and Bank Indonesia had also announced the commercial launch of the Indonesia-Malaysia cross-border QR payment linkage. This move will enable more Indonesians and Malaysians to make instant retail payments in either country by scanning the quick response code Indonesian Standards, QRIS, or do-it-now QR codes at physical stores or online merchants offered by participating financial institutions. This development comes after the March 2023 launch of the cross-border QR code payment linkage between Singapore and Malaysia. Facilitated by the Monetary Authority of Singapore and Bank Negara Malaysia. As international travel regains momentum, the payment linkage looks to provide greater convenience for travellers and benefit the tourism and retail sectors of Southeast Asian economies. This also poses opportunities for growth for the fintech and B2B services in the region. That's all from me and I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Up next, it would be the interview with Dr. Abdul Razak Baginda. Before we dive right into this topic, let's start with a quick fun fact about ride-hailing industry in Southeast Asia. As startups scale up, it often makes sense for them to expand their operations globally. One notable case study is Uber Technologies, the renowned ride-hailing company. In 2013, Uber made its entry into the Southeast Asian market through Singapore, following a plug-and-play approach by leveraging the technology and business model they had already developed. However, Uber's journey in Southeast Asia took an unexpected turn in 2018. Their operations in the region were acquired by another major player, which was Grab. But why couldn't Uber, a well-established startup in the West, Keep up with the emerging players like Grab and Gojek in Southeast Asia? The answer lies in a better understanding of the local landscape. Grab, for instance, had a few advantages over Uber. In certain regions, Grab had Grab Bike, a cheaper, more common mode of transport, particularly in the areas with heavy traffic. They also had the foresight to accept cash payments as cashless transactions were not as prevalent in the region at that time. Additionally, Grab took a different approach to onboarding drivers using an offline marketing approach as well as providing smartphones and technological support to drivers. Turning our attention to Gojek, which has now rebranded to GoTo, the strategy focused heavily on Indonesian market. They developed a super app that integrated various services including ride healing, payments, food deliveries and even grocery deliveries. This holistic approach increased the sickness to their platform among local consumers, making it difficult for foreign players to penetrate the market. So, what can we learn from Uber's experience in Southeast Asia? It highlights the importance of understanding the local landscape and adapting to the unique needs and preferences of the market. While Uber was well-established in the West, the dynamics of Southeast Asia required a more nuanced approach to succeed. Welcome back to another insightful episode of the Long Game Podcast. 
I'm your host Sharul Hamdan and today we embark on an ex- exhilarating journey through the intricate world of global geopolitics. In this episode, we will explore how companies and investors can successfully navigate the ever-evolving and challenging geopolitical landscape. From military conflicts to trade disputes and technological rivalries, the world's geopolitical environment has become increasingly complex, presenting both substantial risks and boundless opportunities for businesses worldwide. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to have our esteemed guest who brings a wealth of knowledge and expertise to our discussion. Please welcome Dr. Abdul Razak Baginda, who has traversed the realms of teaching and research, immersing himself in the study of international relations and strategic studies. Welcome, sir, to the podcast. Thank you. So uh, just to give a bit of background on Dr. Uh, Dr. Abdul Razak has previously served as a lecturer at prestigious Malaysian universities. He was the head of strategic studies and international relations at the Malaysian Armed Forces Defence College and executive director of the Malaysian Strategic Research Centre. He also holds a master's degree in war studies from King's College London and a doctorate in international relations from the University of Oxford. With notable publications like The Global Rise of China and Asia, Impact and Regional Response, Dragon Diplomacy, Analyzing China's Rise, and China-Malaysia Relations and Foreign Policy, Dr. Abdul Razak provides valuable insights into the evolving geopolitical landscape. Today, we will explore how businesses can thrive amidst these geopolitical challenges. So let's dive into this captivating discussion with Dr. So the first question, Dr., um, if we may, as we delve into the challenging realm of navigating the geopolitical environment today, we have a particular focus on ASEAN and its emergence as a fertile ground for competing interests. Could you perhaps start by sharing some insights on major diplomatic developments, such as the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, that might have an impact on ASEAN in light of China's growing economic and military power challenging the traditional dominance of the USA in the region. Over to you, Doctor. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. You know, the number of issues you raised, it's very interesting. There seems to be a paradox taking place. On the one hand, we see some significant shift in the strategic environment. The rise of China, some would argue the decline of the United States, and that has brought to bear a lot of issues. However, at the same time, you mentioned about the Ukraine war. Wars have become part of our global landscape, historical landscape for centuries. So while we are moving to a new era, but we still have wars. That is a grim reminder that while the world is changing, there are still some basic elements that will be with us forever. War, conflict, death, destruction are there for us to see. So in a way, while we are optimistic of the world, but then again, we must always be reminded that there event, uh, you know, we should prepare for all eventualities. So therefore, you know, as, as a... You know, a starting point, I think I like to make that kind of a paradox. Um, I'll give you one example. You know, I mean, if you look at military hardware, I think it was n- no other than former British Prime Minister Jor- Boris Johnson himself, who once said, when he was Prime Minister, I think when he was Prime Minister, he said, tanks are archaic uh, military equipment. We cannot see tanks rolling anymore so we have to look at more sophisticated weaponry uh, 
Hey, behold and behold, we saw tanks moving into Ukraine, Russian tanks moving. We saw the deployment of Ukraine tanks. So, you know, it's kind of really strange as an observer of, you know, international relations and all that. We see a bit of the old and we see new things. So sometimes it's very difficult to, you know, come to grasp what's happening. You know, and we can make all sorts of predictions, but sometimes the old things come back. So, you know, that's, that's an interesting point I'd like to make. Um, okay, you mentioned a few things. I really don't know where to start. Now let's look at rise of China. And how can we deal with this, the, the elephant in the room, the proverbial elephant? Well, it's, you know, if you look at China, everyone has a take on China, right? And in my book, I've actually, you know, espoused the views, essentially a view, that we have to start looking at China beyond the perspective of the Western world. Like it or not, most countries in this region, you mentioned ASEAN, we all we have this very strong Western mindset. And this is because of, you know, we're all part of the global economy, we trade with the Western countries, we're more comfortable and we're at ease when we trade with Western countries. Um, the, the language is, a, is not a barrier. We, you know, Malaysia, for instance, we were colonized by the Brits, so we are very familiar with the Brits. In fact, we're very comfortable. Uh, Singapore, for instance, we don't have to go too far, uh, uh, is hosting American bases, American troops. We in Malaysia, we have all sorts of cooperation with the United States, with the Brits, and that goes a whole ASEAN region, without exception, really. Then you had, and so when you are confronting China, it's it's very strange. It was very interesting. <laughs> I, I uh, saw, um, you know, there was this someone in the Australian context, so they were questioning, was this group of people were questioning the, the Australian armed forces, the general, the top brass of the, the, the Australia. I think they were, they were questioning DOD, the Department of Defense in Australia. The question was, you, what are you preparing against? And the answer was, well, China. China is our main threat, blah, 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 all the reasons. And then the next question was, um, uh, please remind me, I was being sarcastic, um, who is Australia's biggest trading partner? This is China. Okay, then say, okay, hang on a minute. On the one hand, you're defending your country against China by all this military equipment, all the strategic alliances with the Western world to fight China. But at the same time, you're trading the largest, biggest trading partner is China. So and then so and then you could see the kind of the, the generals were like, mm, bloody hell, we were calling this, you know, it's true. So this is where we all are. You know, at the back of our minds, we're not, and the reason for that is because none of us know what China is up to. That's the problem. You know, it's like, uh, why are we afraid of ghosts? We're afraid of ghosts because we don't know what it is. We don't know where it lurks. So because of the unknown, we are fearful. So, but to me, if you look at China, it's not so unknown as it is made out to be. Compounded by the fact that US and China are competing. They're competing at a strategic plane, not only in terms of, uh, you know, the, the usual trade, military, political influence, but also in a technological field. Some have argued that the Chinese have overtaken. It reminds me of a bit of the, the olden days where, you know, the Americans invented it, the Chinese perfected it, and, the, and others would market it and make it a better product. We remember 
the, the, the Japanese of the 1980s, uh, what is Moiri son of the Sony? He was the face of the, the success of, J of Japan. And then the Koreans took over. You know, the Korean products are there. So suddenly people begin to realize, before that, people don't even know Korea in that sense. Uh, so in a way, we are moving towards that direction where the United States is slowly declining and, and, and the Chinese are on the, on, on the move. Now, because we have been looking at the world from a Western perspective, so in a way, to a large extent, we are all in a, in a bind. We know that we have to deal with China, but at the back of our minds, we are we are we influenced by that. So, so when you look at China and all the ASEAN countries you mentioned, not just ASEAN countries around the world, all countries, with exception, have this 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 dilemma in a way. We want to trade with China. China is the future, no doubt about it. But on the other hand, we're not sure where we're heading. When China becomes uh, the, the 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 essential question is whether China will be a hegemon. That means a big powerful country, bullying, uh, or would it be a benign, uh, benevolent country that, you know, that, that looks at win-win sort of paradigm, uh, as opposed to, and then it's really funny, you know, if you look at the United States, United States, I mean, if I was to write a book on the United States, you know what I want to do, but my conclusion would be it's both a benign and a hegemon. The United States has dominated this world since the end of the Second World War. But yet, it has brought good things to the world, right? But yet, we, we, so we see both of that. And then we really have no real issue with the United States. If you look at the way we voting, where we means the whole world has voted, a very few of us would vote against the United States. If anything, we would abstain, you know, unless it's something really like, you know, even, even on a Palestine issue, uh, you know, we, we really, okay, we voice our opinion, but we will not uh, call the ambassador um, uh, or, or expel the ambassador to show our displeasure. We wouldn't do that. Because you see what I mean. So on the one we don't like what Americans are doing, but on the other hand, we would there are barriers which we are not willing to cross. Coming to China, this is where I think we all are, and you know we so ever so often we get we come across all sorts of uh, you know views, whether it's political, trade, commercial, professional. Uh, professors, all of them, coming out with differing perspective of China. And if you are, you know, if you're a business, you know, you're a, a conglomerate, you look at it, you're always thinking of, um, you know, is it, is it, what, what is the level of risk? Risk management, if you're going to invest or you're going to partner with the Chinese uh, on a, to a third country, say, for example, Malaysia, Chinese uh, joint venture investing in a third country, or even you in a Malay, uh, Chinese uh, investment coming to Malaysia, Malaysian company partnering with China, all sorts of issues we are confronted with. And the, only, the, also, the problem also is that we don't have a point of reference. Uh, the precedents are kind of limited. Because, you know, China is only on the rise, to me, in the last 22 decades. You know, although it stemmed off, it started with Deng Xiaoping for modernization, opening of China, Shenzhen being made as the special economic zone, and a little spread. Uh, that was late 70s, but never took off until the 1990s. Uh, because obviously they, they needed the gestation period before they could, you know, ensure that everything was was in place, and then the world also was waiting to receive China. During the early days, people were hesitant, you know. But today, of course, you look everywhere. China is ubiquitous. China is everywhere. The point of reference we have are probably in Africa, uh, 
where China is enormous in Africa. And to me, uh, there are a lot of criticism about Chinese investment in China, what, chi what China is doing in, in Africa. But sometimes I say, hang on a minute, let's, let's take a look at squarely. No one is entering Africa. So if you're an African country and you happen to be a dictatorial, you know, you have a, you know, it's a dictator running that country, you're shunned away from the West. You will not get any assistance from IMF, World Bank, and all the other financial institutions in the world. Why? Because they would give a lot of condi conditionalities. And one of which, as you know, is the democratic path. Okay, but of course, there's a lot of hypocrisy, double standard in that. So let's not go into that double standard, which we see the the Western world is kind of practicing double standard. Some dictatorial dictators and monarchs and God knows what absolute monarchs who are, you know, hand in hand with them on certain issues, but they are willing to close an eye for that on that one. But that's that's a separate issue. So if you look at what they're doing in Africa, um, what choice do they have? They they okay. They want stability. They want um, they want to, they want to bring economic progress. They want to build infrastructure. The infrastructure is very thin on the ground in, in many African countries. So, and the Chinese come in and they say, oh, okay, we're willing to do all this. And I always, you know, add on a bit of uh, sarcasm, is that not only do they say, um, you know, we can help you, they said, hey, you don't even have to pay now. Uh, it, it's, it's the analogy, I think I'm making, the, I think I'm putting in the book. The analogy is like, okay, most of us, would think of, okay, I want to buy a car, I want to buy a house, let me go to the bank and get some money. Imagine the bank comes to you and said, okay, Razak, um, um, we got some money, what do you want? You know, and I'm here, I'm thinking, mm, I don't really want to buy a car, but hey, I've got an opportunity here. This guy's giving me a loan, and why don't I just buy a car, which I don't really need sometimes, but I buy a car, or a, or a house. So there you are. But then you add another um, uh, additional uh, Goody, if you like, and that is, hey, you don't have to pay, but maybe your children will have to pay. Imagine that kind of attraction. And we're not looking at buying cars and, and houses here, we're looking at huge infrastructure projects, ports, roads, airports. You know, these are, and they, they are in dire straits in Africa. So, what China is doing is that they are filling a gap. And if you could, because we hear a lot about debt trap and all that. There are lots of that, but people are looking at the downside. But look at an upside. These countries are starved of funds, investments. Okay, you could say chicken and the egg. You know, every business venture, government-driven or private-driven, all want stability. And one of the reasons why Africa has been in such dire straits is because it's unstable. Coup d'etats or ch frequent change of government. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, but anyway, that aside, we'll come to that in a minute. So, so you, you see what I'm, where I'm getting at. So I, in my book, I, I tend to take the more positive view. In fact, somewhere in the, the preface, I think I mentioned that, you know, I'm, I'm really, it's like, a, uh, it's like a, in a pedal up the creek, and a, a, up, on a boat, you know, the pedal up the creek without a pedal, whatever, a boat up the creek without a pedal. Okay, I'm going. Up, I'm going against the grain because majority of the things that come out, at least from the Western world, is very negative towards China. So my book gives the different perspective and explains why I believe so. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there are not a lot of issues. Um, I let me come to that in in a, in a moment. But at the same time, we are also seeing the decline of the United States. So it's just not. Uh, the China on the rise, but declining United States. Now, 
So you have a strategic competition between these two countries, and these are titans. Whatever they do, the impact of that will transcend every sphere. And this time round, eh, some would remind me, or audience, your audience would say, hey, what about the Soviet Union and America? We've seen that since the Cold War. So what's, what's the difference? The difference is that the competition is real. During the Soviet and the US-Russia thing in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s and all that, you, the, the only threat Soviet Union posed in those days was essentially a military one. It, was, it did not provide any political alternative, neither did it provide any economic incentives. This time around, China provides a whole gambit of alternatives, including the ideology. Because the Western notion of democracy, and everyone knows, it doesn't work. It doesn't work even in the United States, right? It doesn't work in the United States. The, the, the paradox that, that exists in the United States, including the United Kingdom. I mean, you have democracy, hey, all well and good, but you have increasing of um, um, uh, sleeping, sleeping rough, uh, I think that's what they call it, which is homeless people, you know, they in dire straits in the NHS, there's not enough money, you know, it's a whole range of issues. So democracy really is not the issue, but China provides a whole range of alternatives. Coming back to the, the issue of the Ukraine and uh, US, which I think uh, Ukraine and, and Russia and the whole issue, um, apart from the fact that it reminds us of that the old, you know, the old issue of like wars and conflicts will be with us. The thing is, uh, the one I'm very uncomfortable with, the Ukraine war, is that it's seen as a proxy war from the eyes of the Western world. We now know that Russia is now the enemy numero uno of the Western world. And and it and Putin is the the personification of that threat. Uh, so you know, the recent um, you know what was it the arrest warrant against Putin or something like that, you know that's ridiculous. Why wasn't there a arrest warrant against Tony Blair, who you know during the Iraq War has been proven beyond doubt that they went into the war knowing, knowingly that they, 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 they were mendacious about the whole affair. There was no weapons of mass disaster. It was proven beyond doubt. They had a number of um, inquiries driven by parliament, British parliament, it was proven beyond doubt. They lied to the world, you know, and, they, and how much uh, the Middle East and Iraq was, you know, was, was upset the whole, you know, you know, we all know about that. So, you know, you, you could see that. So to me, because it's a proxy war, it is, it is, we're entering a very, very dangerous world. Luckily, the Western world is not able to bring in all its other countries, like, you know, its allies, because the allies are also mindful of the fact that this is clearly a proxy war. Let me come back to China which before, I, before I forget this. I, I, and China is moving in terms of the dip diplomatic world, and, and I think it affects the business world. China most recently did a couple of things that stunned the world. One of which was, was to bring Saudi Arabia and Iran together. And that was, people, people may, may not see it so significantly, but any observer will tell you that to bring Saudi and Iran together, it's a diplomatic feat, which the Chinese have achieved. 
because with that, you, uh, you know, there is, um, you know, in Yemen, there's been a conflict taking place, which is a proxy war fought between the Shia and Sunni, between the, 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 the faction who are pro-Saudi and faction pro-Iran. Pro and these two giants Islam, of the Islamic world are fighting a war through proxies in Yemen. To bring these two together, everyone says, wow, this is amazing. The second one was the coming together with the Russians and the Chinese. Okay. And the impact of that on the, and this is the, probably the single biggest issue today affecting the business community, is what, is what has been dubbed as the de-dollarization. How much is the world trade, the trading world, is going to be affected by the moving away from the US dollar as the preferred choice of trade. Now, early days, I agree, it's early days, but the impact of that move is going to be um, so mind-boggling because we are so used to USD being the trading and to move away. Two options, either it, uh, an alternative currency Renminbi has been dubbed as one alternative or depending on the bilateral relationship, it could be between, say, if it's Malaysia and Thailand, it would be either Baht or Malaysian Ringgit or Malaysia or China, would it be Renminbi or Malaysian Ringgit. But, so, that means, but, so they're moving away. Now, what is that impact of that? From, a, from my perspective, looking at the strategic, that's going to be enormous because it would have an impact on not just the world, but more importantly, on the standing of the United States. Now, Bottom line question is, what will the Americans do? The Americans are not going to sit uh, idly and say, "Okay, we're going to let this pass and you know let you know let let this take its natural course." It's not going to do that. So what is it? What is it going to do? I, of course, I think the Americans. But fortunately for us, is that the American president? You know, I mean, hey, the, you know, an American president today, John Biden, is not the, is not Trump. And I think Trump stands a very good chance to come back because he's going to capitalize on, number one, China's rise, not just China's rise, China's domination of the world. And he's going to use the US dollar, decline of the US dollar as his uh, war cry. You know, and that will, he will gain currency out of that. Currency not being a pun, I'm not being, it's no pun intended there. But I think that's how it's going. But because Joe, Joe Biden is seen as kind of a, not as just a lame duck, it's just not seen as a forceful prime, uh, president. I don't see anything taking place now, but you know the the race is next year. It's already take, it's already you know if 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 he gets he, be, he if he's nominated as a, as the as the presidential nominee, then he's going to be a real threat. Now, if he becomes president, then we may well be going into this you know a second round of U.S.-China um, uh, not conflict, but it could affect us in a in a much more Profound manner, as compared to say the last one when when Trump was president, we were already, we we could see what Trump was doing, you know. And this time round, I think it's going to be even more fierce. Mm. Okay, thank you so much. I'm oh, sorry, you know, that's great. Bit, bit that, that, a bit. that leads uh, to a second question very well. So. Uh, in the context of the ongoing trade and tech conflicts, as, as you've mentioned previously, so what are the key risks and opportunities for companies and investors in ASEAN specifically? Uh, what, what are the things that we should look out for given the current geopolitical environment that you have nicely uh, painted for us? Well, you know, the, 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 
all investments, business-driven uh, investment and, and all that you mentioned, there's only one operating word, and that is stability. No one um, would be comfortable in working in an environment where there is uh, instability. Although I'm mindful, of the, you know, I was told that the Chinese character of crisis is both opportunity and, you know, and fear, whatever it is. So every time when there's a crisis, there's an opportunity lurking. That aside, uh, you know, still stability is something that everybody is thinking of. And the unfortunate uh, thing that I painted in the environment that, you know, that, that is taking the strategic shifts taking place is that we are probably at a, at a, at, at a threshold of a major shift. The, the, the highlight is that you know, we live in a different world now compared to, say, the world of the Cold War. Business is so much, you know, it's, the, uh, the economy is at stake now. People are looking at economy as the primary concern rather than other factors. You know, in those days, military, Cold War, military, ideological element. But today it's about economic well-being. And when you talk about economic well-being, whether it's state, regional, or even global, at the end of the day, we're looking at business activities like, you know, whether it's companies and all that. So to me... Um, it's how we all manage. Not only do we manage the... Okay, Malaysia has got really uh, little say what happens in China or China's relations with the United States. But we have a lot of say within ASEAN. We have a lot of say within our own boundaries. And we have a lot of say in all the bilateral relations that we have. And vice versa, countries like China or Thailand or whatever. But at the same time, stability or instability, but at the same time, we all competing countries. We all compete. Let me give you one example, which is so glaring. Um, it has often been said that uh, Malaysia is often muted in its response to, say, China's violation of airspace or you know infringing our territorial waters or whatever it is. And one of the reasons for that is that we fear that any you know um, strong response would would have an economic backlash. One of the reasons why we feel that is that we know we are also competing for Chinese investments and other investments with our neighbours. If Malaysia, you know, gets its foot wrong, the Indonesians, the Thais, the Cambodians and all the others are quite happy and probably applauding because it's an opportunity for them, you know. So in a way, we, we live, there's a lot of competition in different levels, you know. But to me, at the end of the day, it's about nation-states um, trying to um, maintain its stability. If you look at around the region, uh, we have some, you know, um, uh, what's happening in Thailand and the, the impending general elections in Thailand, possible changes in the Thai government, uh, instability in Malaysia, for instance, uh, stability in other parts of the world, I mean, other parts of Southeast Asia. So to me, it's like, um, how do we ensure that while we have little say in the stability of the global environment, how can we ensure either collectively within ASEAN or within our own individual countries, ensure that there's stability within our boundaries and to manage uh, all the possible backlashes of any instability coming from the different parts of the world. But I am, somehow I am optimistic because of the fact that, because we're all driven by uh, economic um, priorities. 
that we will be mindful of, you know, we, we have our priority. I think we're getting our priorities right. We doesn't mean necessarily Malaysia, but you look at other countries, they're willing to sacrifice politically for the sake of economic stability. Uh, but having said that, a lot rests on, you know, on individual countries, how they manage. Got it. Cool. All right. Are you a high growth startup looking to become Malaysia's next unicorn? Do you want to learn from the best and build relationship with top startup founders in the country? Introducing 100 Unicorns, the first C-level peer coaching program for technology-only startups in Malaysia. Designed by Proficio and ScaleUp Malaysia and in partnership with Pajana Capital and MDAC, this program is your chance to meet and learn from regional and global unicorn founders and VCs who can support your next Series A, B raise. Plus, you build relationships with top 100 startup founders in Malaysia. It's an opportunity you don't want to miss. To qualify, your startup must have raised at least 1 million US dollars or generated 2 million US dollars in revenue over the last 12 months. Application now open for the next cohort at www.proficial.com. 100 Unicorns by Proficio and ScaleUp Malaysia. Hoping turn your high growth startup into Malaysia's next unicorn. So that's a great segue to the next question, actually. So, um, so to, in order to navigate the challenging environment, obviously US dollar, as you said, has been king for decades. But just uh, you know, because of the US now facing some sort of decline in importance, um, we've started to see some kind of de-dollarization happening. Uh, Brazil and Malaysia have joined the call for reducing reliance on the USD for global trade. Um, the ASEAN finance ministers and central banks meeting in Indonesia in March. Um, policymakers have also discussed the idea of cutting their reliance on the USD, uh, Japanese yen and the euro to move to settlements in local currencies instead. So the calls for de-dollarization was the US decision to freeze Russia's um, FX reserves after Moscow um, invaded Ukraine in, in February last year. Uh, so the U.S. and its Western allies have frozen more than 300 billion U.S. of Russia's foreign currency reserves. So, Doctor, I mean, the removal of Russia from SWIFT as well, um, Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, early last year has raised concerns about de-dollarization. Um, so how can companies and investors navigate this uh, challenging environment, especially in ASEAN, which is a region with obviously competing interests? Right. You know, I, I felt, I mean, looking back, I think the American made a big blunder by freezing and punishing Russia. Uh, I remember when the war in Ukraine uh, broke out, uh, Boris Johnson was still prime minister, I think, and what he did was he froze a lot of the oligarchs who were living in the United Kingdom, including the famous Abramovich who owned Chelsea and, and all that. And, and because the oligarchs or the wealthy Russian, they actually has assisted the UK property market, and, and you know has brought you know it brought a lot of good things, and and so it, it was so glaring. But I thought it had it had a negative impact. Everyone felt that hey, this is below the belt. You know, if if the you know if they were if they have been operating in the United Kingdom, for instance, and elsewhere in the Western world, and the banking system has not really raised the red red flag, even when Chelsea was bought by the, the billionaire and all that, you know, there was no red flag. 
until they invaded Ukraine. So suddenly they were all punished, and I think that had a really it it it, it there was a backlash. Everyone felt that you know they they shouldn't have done. They and I think they will pay very dearly for that move. So and and people are saying that's going to be uh, disadvantages to the move towards de-dollarization. I think it's on the contrary. I think that has helped to push countries towards de-dollarization because they say that the United States has used a political, you know, uh, stick uh, and exercised it for far too long, especially the the the, the one on, against the Russians, and then and then the way the Americans are backing or the Western world is backing Ukraine uh, because they have identified Russia. You see, they they can't they can't punish the Chinese. Because the Chinese have not started anything, and the Chinese are not foolish enough to start anything, so they they focus on Russia, and then because Russia and China are now friends, so that that has impacted on a number of countries looking at this. So to me, it is a positive towards the dollarization. Countries are looking at it kind of very very kind of. It, we were shocked anyway. I I as you know because because I I'm all, I'm. I live between KL and London, and I was kind of surprised, and people were surprised because the the Russian community is a vibrant one. It has brought a lot of investments into London uh, in the property market. Okay, some would argue that they have upped the market, but still, they are their presence is quite quite obvious. Um, so, to me, the the this is going to uh, work to the advantage of the dollarization. However, having said all that. It's not going to be so easy, simply because um, you know the, the, we are still thinking along the lines of the dollar, uh, and it, it's like the twilight zone. We're entering to a zone where we're not sure. But what is going to be? Um, so we have a lot of initiatives. ASEAN has come up with initiative. I remember a Malaysian prime minister came out and he he sort of reminded everyone that he started the ASEAN Monetary Fund for instance so so but we have tried this before there are many many different funds that have you know the Africans also have their own funds but it is always um, being dominated by the World Bank IMF and that has been the global standard in a way you know until today a drug you, know, you wouldn't take a drug until you know it's DFA proof uh, you know uh, uh, FDA, FDA approved. FDA. Sorry, FDA approved. The, the, the Food and Drug Agency approved. Once you got the FDA, okay, we're safe. We can eat. But FDA is what? It's Americans. So we're still, so, the, the, so American standard is synonymous to international standard. And this is still in our mindset. And the dollar has been so dominant since the end of the Second World War, Bretton Woods and all that stuff. So you, you, you look at it and you say, hey, we can, who's going to back this up? Where the reserves? Most of the reserves are all in USD, right? So what's going to happen? So and at the same time, US is not going to sit back and let it happen. So so I think we're going to have a transition period in which we're going to test and see whether. Uh, see, at the moment, it's all rhetoric. People are talking about okay, we're going to use uh, Malaysia and whatever. Okay, we decided to use uh, either a common currency or that both uh, common currency both countries have agreed, renminbi being one, or are we going to be bilateral? Okay, but no one has really done it yet. See what I mean? So we're not sure. And it, can you imagine the kinds of problems you'll face, the fluctuation of the currency between the two countries? 
and it's okay Malaysia Bangkok you know Malaysian uh, are ringgit and the Thai baht it's kind of uh, you know it's kind of stable okay it'd be in fluctuation but it's stable imagine you're you're trading in Africa okay say Malaysia is trading with an African country so Swaziland you know are we confident to or they confident are we confident to trade in their currency and they trading in our currency we're comfortable with our currency so you see what I mean and then renminbi and renminbi you know it's still a very it's strong but it's still an unknown commodity you know what I mean because so to me we can talk about it but so that's why people talk about this kind of uh, transition period uh, kind of gestation period before we moved and then the uncertainty of what the Americans will do in order to preserve its uh, dominance okay so um, doctor through your experience with think tanks in your opinion who are Malaysia's strategic bilateral relationships in Southeast Asia you did liken our foreign policy as M&M meek and muted who do you think should be our strategic ally US or China if we were forced to choose well uh, apart from the fact that I love M&M which is uh, you know when I was young M&M used to be called Smarties now it's got M&M, or more or less. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's not such an easy thing about choosing one or the other. Uh, and I think it's, today we should change our paradigm mindset. Um, you know, there's an adage, I think it was Lord Palmerson who said, there's no such thing as enemies or only permanent, no, no permanent friends except permanent interests, friends or enemies. The most important thing is where does our interest lie as a state, as a company, as a, you know, as an entrepreneur. And obviously, it's all about well-being. It's all about prosperity and peace. Uh, those, those are words that are, that are you know, um, relevant, evergreen words. Okay? So if you ask me to choose between China and the United States, and if ever I am to choose, you know, A, I'm not a betting man, but if I am to choose... You know, I close my eyes and I choose. Is that all right? <laughs> I would choose the Chinese. Why would I choose the Chinese? Because I think, you know, I, in my book, if you read my book and you read my book and you, you look at that section where I look at a threat perspective. Uh, and is, that's why I'm heavily criticized, by the way. This book is heavily criticized in the Western world because I, I, the book is seen as a kind of a pro-China but what I did was I actually look at um, China's use of force historically, and I listed all of them down historically from since forty nine, nineteen fifty being the you know they they and they intervened in the Korean War and Vietnam War you know I listed on Tibet and all that, and and in the Vietnamese conflict in seventy nine eighty sort of period, and my conclusion is that you would have thought that they would have used their 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 force their, 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 their power more than they have so they have been they have exercised caution in its use of force it could have but it didn't in sharp contrast if you look at the united states united states has destroyed more countries than any other countries in the world historically and i listed them down uh I, I, I'm not an MTU, I'm not MTU, as I'm looking at the facts, I can rattle down all the intervention that has caused a lot of misery. 
I mentioned Iraq war. But did you know that in 73 in Chile, uh, there was a presidential election and this popular Salvador Allende was came to power as a president, but he was espousing socialism. He was more you know, he was friendly to the Soviet, uh, to the Soviets. Was friendly to, to Cuba, but he was a very popular president. And what did Americans do? Instigated a coup, brought in Pinochet, and he fell. Allende fell and was, I think he he was killed. Sponsored by the CIA. I'm not making this up. It's there for you to see. And you have Pinochet. Who's Pinochet? Pinochet was one of the most you know, a gruesome dictator that ruled Chile for that long period. Argentina, the whole of Latin America was spoiled by the United States. The United States came out with this, this so-called Monroe Doctrine at the turn of the century, in which it justified itself to intervene in Latin, Central America and Latin America because, for, because they see this as their backyard, so they have to protect. Similarly, the, Soviet, the, similarly, the Soviets saw the Eastern European area as their backyard, you know? I can see that. So, and then if you look at the Chinese, and people talk about Taiwan being the next um, point of conflict. But, you know, you, people tend to forget Taiwan is part of China. And the, the, the Chinese have made it very clear. We will use force to unify Taiwan. And countries like us, okay, forget about the Taiwanese, okay? Um, we're looking from, from, our, from, from a global perspective. Why wouldn't China want to unify Taiwan? They have all the justification. If you look at the record, people think that Taiwan is an independent country. Actually, they, it, it all started with the, when the Guamindang and the Chiang Kai-shek lost the civil war in 1948-49. They basically escaped the mainland and established a new country in the Formosa, Formosa island, Taiwan. It was a renegade. They ran away. So, and they, historically, it's already been part of their, their, their area. So, if they fight, if they fight, and even in my book, I actually said, despite all the propaganda, uh, you know, threatening the world that China will fight in Taiwan, in my book, I came out, and I used that from my, my knowledge, my limited knowledge on military strategy, and I said that Chinese do not have the technology at this moment to invade Taiwan. And besides, even if he wants to invade Taiwan, what's he going to do? He has to occupy. You know? And, and the Chinese are not foolish enough to go and fight Taiwan and destroy the very credibility he wants to preserve. And he wants to give an image to the world that is not an aggressive country. So that's one of the reasons why he choose. And then besides, U.S. is the declining power. No one wants to bet the crown on the declining power, right? <laughs> But my fear is that, because you asked me to choose, but my fear is that, but okay, my, my first point is not to choose. But if I am pushed to the wall, which you seem to be doing, then I would choose the Chinese. Okay. And I give you give the reasons why I would choose Chinese. Now, in terms of even economic well-being, the only, I mean, the Chinese are the only one with the money and the ability. Do you see, you know, the Americans are actually losing, you know, I mean, I, in my book again, I'm sorry to publicize my book but I'm you know I'm not gonna make any money in selling my book it's too bloody expensive anyway so put it aside I made I, I you know you look at technology the Americans are far behind now I mean even TikTok they, they cannot they, can, they can't even compete with TikTok you know what I mean and what do they do with TikTok? Bennett. Bennett 
I mean, mm. that is so shameful. I mean, I would have been, I would, I would be embarrassed. I would, I would be, I would be. It's so embarrassing to see the Americans can't compete, Ben. And I was, and I, I listened to the debate. I listened to the, the, uh, the congr congressional, um, uh, what did they call it? Um, um, you know, when the, when the CEO TikTok was being questioned by a panel of uh, congressional hearing, right? Was it called? Yeah, you know, in, in UK they call it parliamentary. And and he was questioned, and it became public. I mean, I, I didn't even know he was a Singaporean. He was see, I think. I mean, he became a superstar after that, right? The way he answered the questions, I thought it was brilliant. And who looked foolish? TikTok didn't look foolish. The Americans look foolish. You know, you can't compete. What do you do? Use force. You force them down. You know, and if that's the way they're going to compete, now they're not. They're going to be losing. They they're going to be the losing end. And most people, not me, I mean, I, I'm too old to compete in this, but most entrepreneurs, you know, they would go for the winner. No one would go for the loser. So to me, if you look at the first, remember I mentioned recently, uh, earlier about the, the, the Americans, the, the Western world uh, punishing Russian uh, oligarchs and Russian money freezing this, uh, kicking Russian out of certain financial institutions and all that. I mean, that's shameless. Sorry. It's not shameless. It's yeah, shameless. You know why would they want to do that? It's it's, it's it doesn't show a country that has confidence. Okay, um, this thing about Mickey muted before because I think that's kind of let me end with that. Mickey muted because I think because we have economic priorities in mind. So resp respond has always been about we're not sh we're not going to show our hand. I okay, Malaysia and other countries may be criticized for being meek, powerless, and not saying anything. But to me, maybe that would be the best. Uh, but at the same time, occasionally we do have to say something. So maybe you know, um, you know, out of ten, nine times will be M and M, and maybe the last one we you know we have to say, hey, we're still here. You have to honor some of the thing, and and this M and M came about as a result of the violations of airspace and our territorial waters around South China Sea. And that concludes the insightful exchange with Dr. Abdul Razak on the complexities of geopolitics. For the full interview, head to our YouTube channel at Panjana Capital. Don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe to our channel for more interesting contents. As usual, we hope you found this conversation informative and thought-provoking. Do reach out to us for further questions or suggestions for the next episode. Don't forget to tune in next time as we continue our journey to explore the world of VC to bring you more expert insights and in-depth discussions. Thank you for listening to The Long Game Podcast. Till next time, keep playing the long game and stay ahead of the game in the world of venture capital. Yeah.